I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Amna Nawaz thought she'd be a lawyer when she grew up. That was before she was an intern at Nightline on September 11th. That horrific incident was a deciding reason she became a journalist. She worked for ABC News and was Islamabad bureau chief for NBC News covering the war in Afghanistan. In 2019, Nawaz became the first Asian American and the first Muslim American to moderate a presidential debate. Today, she is co-anchor of the NewsHour on PBS. I spoke with Amna Nawaz last Thursday at WHYY before an audience in a wide-ranging conversation about the challenges of journalism building trust and fighting against misinformation and disinformation. She's a first-gen American. Her parents immigrated from Pakistan and has worked to bring more diversity and a wider range of voices to the newsroom. She also shared stories about her family and what she has learned about herself and humanity working out in the field. Today, we play back portions of that interview. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Amna Navas, WHYY. Marty, thank you so much. <laughs> and I should add, we talked yesterday for the first time. She was flying in from Jacksonville, Florida. Her plane was four hours late. We managed to chit-chat in the afternoon. Then she was on the news hour last night. That's right. You're here in Philly today. I assume you're going back and you'll be on the news hour tomorrow? Sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. It's a standard, standard Thursday. Yeah, yeah, standard Thursday. Well, yeah. what is, what is a, a regular day like for the co-host of the news hour? Ooh, every day is different. Can I just start by saying what an absolute privilege it is to share a stage with the Marty Moss Cohen, oh, everyone? Thank yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I'm really, really grateful to be here with all of you. Uh, so every day is different, and I think that's what I love about this job. There, no two days are the same, um, although during the pandemic, my husband and I like to joke that every day was a different version of Tuesday. You just kind of woke up and felt <laughs> right. like you needed to get through it. But our day starts bright and early. Mine earlier than some, I think. I've got two little girls who are 10 and 7 and are still waking up. Uh, between 6 and 6.15. Tell me that changes later. Uh, and then 9 o'clock in the morning, we have our morning conference call. Our whole team gets together. We kind of set our priorities for the day. And then we're just off and running. Um, every day is catching the news as it comes at you, pulling the news from places people don't want it to come from, and trying to put together the best show we can by 6 o'clock Eastern every day. And that's what I keep stressing to the team because we have an incredible team of perfectionists, some of the best journalists I've ever worked with. Everyone wants to put the best show on every day. And I always have to say, it's the best show we can do by six o'clock. Mm. And then we wipe the slate clean and we start again tomorrow. Yeah. Nothing like a deadline, right? Yeah. To kind of to hold focus your feet you. to the fire. I wonder, it's been almost a year since you've been co-anchor right. of the news hour. Are there still surprises? Was there something that really just surprised you, having worked in the field and had so much experience out in the world to yeah. be sitting behind a desk? I'm not sure something has surprised me so much. I think what I love most about the job when I was in the field and also as an anchor is that every day there's still something new, mm -hmm. good or bad, right? In the field, there was always a sense of newness because you were meeting people where they were. You were going into people's homes. You're sitting down at their kitchen tables. You're you know, holding their babies. You're really getting to understand and build connections and bridges, which is what I love about being in the field still to this day. 
And in the anchor chair, you have access to people you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And the duty and responsibility that comes with being the person who's asking the questions, as you know, uh, you know, I'm thinking in that chair about all of you. I'm thinking about all the people who aren't there to ask the questions and what is it that you need to know? What do I need to try to hold this person's feet to the fire about? And you literally learn something new every day. And there's not many jobs you can say that about. Mm -hmm. This is still one of those jobs where I'm like, I get paid to do this? This is amazing. <laughs> so it's not so much it surprises me, but it is, it's something new every day. You have talked about being a, a little girl and, and watching the evening news with your dad. That's right. And did you, as a little girl, say, ooh, I want that job? No, because I didn't look at Dan Rather and see someone who <laughs> right, right. <laughs> looked like me. I mean, truly, this is, you know, I say honestly, I've been doing this job 20 years. I could not have imagined myself in this role 20 years ago because there weren't people like me in this role. And it speaks both to the power of, if you see it, you can be it, uh, which we know happens you know, across all different industries and, and uh, institutions of power in America. But it also, I think, speaks to this place where we are in journalism, right. which is to say it's, it's not the news of 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. We have so many more sources of information. We have so many more choices as a consumer about who you choose to trust and where you choose to get your information. And I think that's why it's so much more important for journalists today to bring their full selves, to be fully transparent, to be authentic in your work, because people can tell the difference. People know when you're faking it. They know when you're not being yourself. How, though, do you build trust? And there is, you know, there is so yeah. much mistrust, either earned or not earned, just kind of wafting across the land, around the world, yeah. um, it, all of our institutions, including journalism, are, are really, in some cases, under attack or certainly have been minimized and, and sort of pushed to the side. How do you fight against that? There's, I think there's two parts to that. One is the, the journalists under attack, which is absolutely true. Um, and I remember, gosh, it must have been 20... 18, maybe 2019, I was traveling with uh, my family. And I remember boarding a plane as we were walking up the jetway about to get on the plane. And the gentleman ahead of me had on a t-shirt that on the back said, journalist, tree, rope, some assembly required. Wow. And my daughters were with me. Mm. And my eldest had begun to read. And I remember thinking at that time, okay, like, let's distract her. Um, but also, this is the landscape in which we exist, where that is acceptable enough to be printed on T-shirts. And I was there on January 6th. You know, we at one point pulled up all of our equipment and just ran because the mob that had been trying to break into one of the particular doors had been pushed back by Capitol Police, and they immediately turned around, saw a group of journalists, and started running towards us. Mm. I'm sure a lot of you saw the pictures where the journalists who were in sort of the pen area had all their equipment trash. We were standing on the other side of them. We'd chosen not to get into that pen, and we just ran until there was nobody behind us. I mean... Look, I have worked in enough places around the world to know that this is not the worst of it. There's a lot of people around the world who face much worse every single day, but this is new for us here. Right. And so uh, there is that part of it. But on the trust issue, to me it is very simple in some ways, which is Jeff and I have inherited chairs on the most trusted brand in America, and that's something we do not plan this is on messing up. Yes. 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 
Uh, and secondly, trust is like anything else in your life, I think, where you don't just get it by showing up. You don't just get it by doing one thing or one story. You do it every single day. You show up, you do your job, and you bring that consistency that people need to see to know this is someone I can turn to. And that's the only way to do it. There's no magic bullet. There's all these questions about objectivity and fairness and what is true and what isn't true. And, and I always think objectivity is synonymous with neutrality, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's really, doesn't get to what objectivity is supposed to be. It's interesting because I think you probably have these conversations too with colleagues. There's a lot of redefining of our modern standards yes. in journalism going on. Yes. And the question I always ask is objectivity based on whose standard, based mm -hmm. on whose view? Because for decades, our industry standards were built by a very small, homogenous group of mainly older white men that has changed in the last generation quite a bit. And I choose my standards, and I'd like to hold myself accountable mm -hmm. to the ideas of fairness and truth. And truth. And even those become debatable, depending on who you're talking to. But I ask myself, if this was my story being told, would I feel like I was getting a fair shot? You know, am I being polite and conducting myself in a way that my mother would still be proud? <laughs> These are really basic, everyday sort of values and standards that I try to bring to the job. But, you know, Christian Amanpour has said, rather than... Uh, being neutral, be truthful. Be truthful. And I think that's a good standard for all of us. I wonder too, as being, you know, the first Muslim American or the first first gen immigrant from a first gen immigrant family, whether you feel the kind of weight of representing your people, if you know what I mean, that what you say yeah. is gonna be thought of as well, this is how Muslim Americans think or act. You know, I've spoken to enough firsts in their space and in, in across a number of different industries to know that there is a certain weight that comes with it yeah. and, and a bit of an unfair standard because there's an idea that if you mess it up, you close the door for everyone else behind you. And these are just part of our societal standards we have yet to really address. So yes, I, I will I'd be lying if I said I don't feel some sense of duty and responsibility mm -hmm. because I hear from people all the time who tell me, my daughter loves watching you every day. I had one guy send me a video of his, of his young uh, Pakistani daughter holding a spoon pretending to be uh, a reporter <laughs> and signing off from her kitchen and saying, I'm Omni Nabat from the PBS <laughs> News Hour. And That's I just great. thought that was so sweet. And, you know, I think about what I would have thought if I had been seven years old and had someone like that to look up to. So, yes, there's absolutely pressure, I guess. Mm -hmm. But Billie Jean King put it best, like, pressure is a privilege. You mentioned the fact that your parents came from Pakistan, came yeah. to America. What, what brought them here? What pulled them here? What pushed them away? What was, what was the so, reason they came? I tell this story with a little bit of hesitation because people assume there was some pressure for me to become a journalist, and there truly wasn't. But my father was a journalist in Pakistan. Ah. Oh, he was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> my father um, anchored the English-language evening news on PTV. Oh. And he was, you know, sort of the heartthrob on television. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, covered wars. He made documentaries. 
He worked with a number of American outlets when they were there covering the wars and was basically put on to the fact that there was a wonderful journalism institution in New York City called the Columbia School of Journalism and, you, and he should apply because he was very good and he thought, okay, and he did. And he got in and he got a scholarship. And so my father, who is by the way, like one of my favorite people on the planet and one of the most impressive people you'll ever meet, came from a small village in Pakistan, you know, had the best education, just rose into the levels he probably shouldn't have based on what it looked like on paper and came to the J School. Wow. in New York in 1973. Wow. And your mother? My mother followed. There's a, a, a funny story, actually. They, they knew each other most of their lives because their mothers were best friends. <laughs> they were both military families in Pakistan. They'd had a posting to the same place. They kind of shared a backyard. My mother's older brother was one of my father's dearest friends. And because my father actually ended up losing his parents earlier in life, who he married was up to him, and he and my mother chose each other. Wow. Yeah. I feel like there's a movie to be made about your I family. Feel like, yeah, I think it might be there. That's Amna Nawaz, the co-host of the PBS NewsHour. We spoke last week at WHYY before an audience of Amna fans. Much more to talk about after this very short break. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoane, and you're listening to The Connection right here on WHYY. I'm talking with Amna Nawaz, the co-host of the NewsHour on PBS, about her 20-year career as a journalist. We taped this interview last week at WHYY for a special audience event. Amna has spent most of those 20 years in the field, covering a range of topics, plastic pollution, school shootings, the January 6th insurrection, and the war in Afghanistan when she was Islamabad bureau chief for NBC News. She was the first foreign journalist to gain access to Waziristan, which was a hub for al-Qaeda and the Taliban at the time. She sought out women to interview and saw a different side of war. She also shared her experiences being the daughter of immigrants. You were born, obviously, after the 1970s. Um, the very, 1979, the very last year of the 70s, right, yes. Right. I asked this because of some of the anti-immigration politics and even psychology that we see. Yeah. Uh, how were you treated? I mean, do you feel like you were... You had to sort of muscle your way into acceptance? This is a credit to my parents, which mm -hmm. is to say they shielded us Did from they? any of that discomfort or any of that that they felt, and I know they must have. I mean, I imagine, you know, what my mother went through going to get her driver's license, what my father would go through in, in mostly white circles in which we lived. But their approach to it was something I adopted, which was basically, these are stupid people, and why would we waste our time thinking about them? Oh, Truly. Wow. And they always told us, why would you worry what anyone else thinks of you? Why would you care what anyone else thinks of you? You know who you are, and you're not going to let anyone get in your way. And so they would show up in spaces and just belong 
Um, that was my parents enrolling us in an all-girls Episcopalian school. Uh, as, you know, we were the young Muslim kids who would go to chapel every Wednesday, and <laughs> why not, you know? And even when the teachers had offered to my parents, you know, your girls don't have to go to chapel, they can go to study hall if they want. And my mother said, why wouldn't they go? What, yeah. What's the harm in them learning about their friend's religion and also their friends learning about their religion? My mother used to come to the school and do presentations about the Eid holiday. And, um, she really showed up with her full self and it was a, it was a real, um, we were really lucky to have that as an example, my sisters and I. And you went to the University of Pennsylvania. I did. Yay Penn. Yay, Yay Penn. Um, and um, you were captain of the varsity field hockey I team. Was. What position did you play? I played center back and center midi. Oh. Yeah, right back my junior year, I think. I'm trying to remember now. but I was left wing in high school. Oh. But never the captain. No, but you scored <laughs> no. all the goals, right? <laughs> yeah. Rarely. Um, you worked for part of, I guess, maybe post- education, maybe you were still in college, worked for Ted Koppel. I did. Yeah. yeah. As an intern? as a It was something called the Nightline Fellowship. It was a one-year paid internship, basically, your lowest rung on the totem pole. Yeah. And that was my first year after Penn. And this happened to coincide with September 11th, right? You did. Were, you I were working with I began that him. job in August of 2001. And it was meant to be a sort of, you know, stopgap. I'll say it. I'll do a year. Right. Just kind of learning something new, and I thought, oh, journalism, that's that thing my dad used to do. Like, this could be fun. Uh, but yeah, it was literally three weeks into that very first job and my mm. very first experience in the real world. And, and the world changed. The world absolutely changed. I also read that you saw an article, I guess shortly after September 11th, and the headline was, Why Do They Hate Us? Yeah. And it got you thinking about that headline, but what that headline represented to you. So I was, you know, a 21-year-old brown American, Muslim American kid figuring out my place in the world. Mm. And then 9-11 happens. And suddenly, one of the smallest parts of my identity, as far as I'm concerned, my faith, becomes the only part that anyone's really interested in. And I remember at the time, you know, a lot of folks in our community hanging American flags outside their homes. Right. I remember a lot of our sick American friends being attacked in the street. I remember a lot of my friends being bullied at school, people keeping their kids home from school because they didn't want them to face any of that. I, I don't have to tell you what my friends named Osama went through. Oh, wow. And in that newsroom in particular, I think, when that headline, it was the front cover of a magazine, and I remember it was a sea of just sort of angry male brown faces with just why do they hate us? And all I could think of was, am I the they or the us? Oh, wow. Wow. And I know there were a lot of other people who felt that way, too. So at that time, all of a sudden, journalism was your path, was, was going to be your chosen profession. I don't think I knew it at the time, right? right? Much in the way that, you know, maybe when you meet your, your life partner, you're not sure at the time, but you know there's something interesting you want to kind of pursue here. And... It just felt so normal, and it mm -hmm. felt so purposeful, and it felt so important. And in all the chaos and uncertainty and fear of the moment, here was this place where people could turn to. I mean, think about it. Something big happens in the world, and you turn to your phones. You turn to your screens. You go to people who you trust to help you figure out what's going on and make sense of the world around you. And I really can't think of any higher purpose 
right now. I'm thinking of your time as a, as a journalist. You were Islamabad bureau chief for one of the, the big networks. Um, and this is, of course, in the country where your, your family was born. That's right. Um, what did you see as your job there? So I took the job first as a correspondent. I was kind of bouncing around the region, mainly hopping between Islamabad and Kabul. Um, and I spent, in those three or four years, about eight or nine months on the road wow. every year. And I will also say these were the first three years of my marriage. <laughs> was your husband in Islamabad? He was in New York, working oh, for the New York, York Times. Okay. You know, we, I, I would get back as often as I could. We would meet up in different places. But that was... Um, Listen, he knew who he married, and, <laughs> and he supported me more than anyone else, and he said, you have to do this job. You know, It's not forever, but you have to do this job. Uh, and when I took the job, I felt like there were a lot of stories that weren't being told. I think there was a very narrow way of viewing that part of the world on some of the commercial networks. All the stories were focused on national security. Unless terrorism was involved, it wasn't a story. And I knew there were so many more stories and so many more people that weren't being represented back here. And I thought it was an opportunity for me right. to build some of those bridges and help people understand the region as I knew it. Well, and I wonder, too, being a woman, whether that gave you access to certain stories that were not getting covered. In some ways, yes. And I choose to look at the advantages it brings with it. There are right. certainly disadvantages in that part of the world, right? There are a number of officials in the military and the government who would actually refuse to shake my hand because I'm a woman or wouldn't meet with me alone. And there were countless times I was the only woman in the briefing room or the only woman on the military embed or whatever. But there are so many more times when the women in these cultures who honestly have the real stories sometimes and are often ignored by many of the male correspondents would invite me into the home where no male journalist could go and would sit me down and serve me tea and tell me what was really going on in their community. And even if they couldn't go on camera, you know, I could carry their stories for them. Right. So I, I looked at that as not just a distinct advantage, but a real privilege. I mean, were you a war correspondent? Is that how you think of your time? Big part of my job was war and conflict, unfortunately. Yeah. And even though we wouldn't say that the US was at war with Pakistan in the time, it was in the years I was there, the part of the world that we were dropping more drone strikes than anywhere else on the planet. And to go out to those places where they do feel they were living at war because the children are not traumatized by the sound of the humming and the buzzing every time the drones fly over. No one is sleeping. You know, Their neighbors have been killed in their sleep. A wedding party was attacked. I think war can mean lots of different things, and it's not necessarily a stroke of a pen by a congressional leader. It can, it can just mean the constant fear and uncertainty that I saw so many people living in. Were you afraid? Were there times you were afraid? The biggest fear I had, uh, because at the time one of the largest fundraising opportunities for the criminal groups and Taliban and Al-Qaeda on the ground was kidnapping. Yeah. And so when I go, you know, you go through training, hostile environment training, it's called, to prepare yourself for these kinds of things. The truth is you can never really be prepared. The only preparation you have to do is really mental to be able to say, I'm okay facing this. This is a risk I'm willing to take. Wow. Because if you go in thinking it's never going to happen to you, it's probably going to happen to you. And so I prepared every day and lived my life every day for those years, avoiding being kidnapped 
largely, which wow. meant I barricaded myself into my apartment every night. I changed my daily routine regularly. I didn't let other people or many people know about my movements or my travel from day to day. And I, I don't think I realized how much of my psyche that had infiltrated until I stopped living that way. And I realized for years afterwards, I would enter a room and immediately look for all the exits. Oh. I would never sit in a restaurant with my back to the door. Um, it was all those kinds of, of those things that, quite frankly, my therapist and I had to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking about going to Waziristan, and, and this, as I mentioned in my introduction, this was yeah. a time when really was the, the sort of central area for the Taliban, Al-Qaeda. Even the Pakistan military was not going there. The right. reason um, and the way in which they took me in was calling me the night before saying, we're leaving tomorrow because they didn't want anyone to intercept the communications. I said, if you're going to come, meet us at the air base and be on this helicopter. And so I had you know, that night to call my husband on a sat phone mm. because only he and I knew that I was pregnant at the time and said, I think I got to go. <laughs> And like I said, he knew who he married, and he said, I think you do. You wow. have to go. But truly, it wasn't the fear. I mean, there was, yes, it was an active conflict area. I was with the military. They would only take me places I think they felt were safe. We helicoptered most places because the roads weren't safe. And when we were on the base, they were just constantly sending out suppressive mortar rounds into the hills and surrounding the base because they never knew who was there. But the thing that I felt most on that trip, I remember, was this distinct sense of just how patently unfair our world is. Because I was there, pregnant, and I knew the kind of life I was going to be giving my child. And here was this part of the world where they just didn't even have a glimmer of that hope. They had no schools, they had no clinics, they had no stores, they had no roads. And everyone you talked to would say, you know, I just want to be able to live my life in peace. I just want to send my daughter to school. I just don't want to have to worry every time my wife is giving birth that she may die on the three-hour trip to the nearest clinic. It was just so simple to me in so many ways that, but for a twist of fate, my life could have looked very much like theirs. Mm. I, I've never covered war, but, but interviewed people who have, and it seems you do see the worst, as you describe, and you do see the best. You At times, do. I'm not. I don't want to overstate that by any by any stretch. But I wonder whether it gets you very close to human nature, like what people are capable of doing. It gives you hope, even in the worst of circumstances. Really? It does because you see people living through, surviving, and in some cases thriving in absolutely unimaginable circumstances. Right. And you think, if they can do it, then I can do it. And I think you also get this sense that, which is something I've carried along with me, it's a lesson my parents taught me as, as a young girl, there is so much more that connects us and that ties us to one another than that separates us, even if you don't share the same passport or the same language or the same faith. I, in this body, in this being, have landed in communities across the planet and have managed to find something in common with every single person I've spoken to. Like, what does that tell us? And, and I think that informs a lot of my journalism sure. I was just going to say, I mean, it sounds like that informs your journalism. I, I think it does. I think it has to. I mean, I think if you are constantly looking at the things that divide us, if you're constantly looking for um, ways to other people, you're not doing your job. Our job as journalists is to stand in the void. You know, our job as journalists is to make those connections, to help people better understand the world around them.
That's Amna Navaz, co-host of the NewsHour on PBS. She was at WHYY last week for a special audience event. We have much more to talk about, including preparing for the upcoming presidential election, why she sought therapy after covering the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and trying to balance work life and family life. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moskowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Our guest is Amna Navaz, who has spent 20 years as a journalist and is currently the host of the NewsHour on PBS. We spoke last week when she visited the station. We've been talking about some of her experiences working as a foreign correspondent. Now we discuss some important domestic issues. We were talking yesterday and talked about this upcoming presidential election. We both agreed, no, it's not upcoming. It is ongoing. Always. But nonetheless, how, how are you preparing for the next year and change? This year in particular is unique and offers unique challenges for us yeah. as journalists. And I, that is largely because of the former president and the flood of misinformation that can come, not just from former President Trump, but from any number of people who now know that manipulation in the media is a powerful and potent form of messaging. It's something we, as journalists, have to be prepared for. And I think the bar for live interviews in particular has really gone up. You have to be ready all the time to push back. You have to be ready all the time to fact check. And you'll never catch everything, but you can do your best. Well, Donald Trump is not a normal candidate. I mean, that's sort of an understatement, if, if ever there was. Yes. Um, and, and I think even all the preparation, all the fact-checking, it is near impossible to keep up with the things that he says that are just absolutely not true. Yes. In real time. Yes. All of that is true. Yes. <laughs> you know, the other part of it is... Um, the very debate over whether you cover and how you cover what he does choose to say. I'll point you all towards one of the segments we did last night, actually, if you watched, um, because there is this thing I read about recently that someone has sort of coined it, the banality of chaos, which is every time there's an outrageous statement of some kind from former President Trump, we say, well, this has now become the norm for him and then becomes the norm for us. And I believe deeply that's something we need to safeguard against because it's not normal or acceptable. And rather than cover it every single time, mm. what we did was choose to allow a few different moments to sort of aggregate and then pull them together to be able to provide some context and a little more nuance around some of the increasingly violent rhetoric we've been seeing from him as his legal troubles have mounted and more of that pressure has grown. And again, I'll go back and look at it again. I go back and watch all our work sure. to kind of figure out what we can do better. But to me, it was um, one of the best ways, and all credit to Laura Brown Lopez, our White House correspondent, for pulling this together. But it was a great way to pull together all of those pieces of the puzzle to provide more of a portrait and a landscape and say, here's why this matters. Here is the trend we have seen. Here is the pattern we have seen. Here is very disturbing historical context for these kinds of statements. And I think that level of understanding is important right now. Yeah, I mean, context is, is so important. And just thinking of, of the kind of veiled, not so veiled threat that he made to, to Millie about his- Not veiled at all, right? Uh, not veiled yeah. at all, you know, that this was treason and what's the punishment for treason, yeah. but death. Yeah. 
And you just want to wonder, so how much oxygen do you give that, which is an outrageous statement, but at the same time, you don't want to feed his need for publicity and attention. Yes, and at the same time, right. he is the leading candidate exactly. for one of our two right. major parties to be presidential nominee, yeah. and we cannot ignore that. When he was president, we would ask ourselves, does this tweet matter? Well, when the president says it, doesn't it matter? I think one of the goals we hold ourselves to, certainly that I do, is especially in these times where it's very easy to become outraged by something or to yeah. feel something as a result of what you're reading or hearing. I do try to take a step back. See, the purpose here is to add light, not heat. There's a lot of hot takes out there, and I don't need to participate in that conversation. We want to illuminate the information that you need. Which is tricky to do. I mean, even, you know, I, I find myself sort of gravitated to the heat part, you know, and, and then the light part comes after that because outrage is such a compelling emotion. It's become sort of a commodity in our information yeah. cycle these days. Uh, but I, I choose, you know, I'd like to think as adults, we choose when to allow ourselves to become emotional or not, which is not to say we are robots. If you saw my Uvalde coverage, I had a very hard time holding it together. That was real. Mm. But I have a few rules. I, I never tweet or post anything when I'm angry or when I'm sad or when I've had a drink. And I just feel like <laughs> that, that is my bar. Yeah. You mentioned Uvalde, and I know you got some award, uh, an award for some of the work that you have done on gun violence. Yes, thank you for Our that. Our whole team did. Yeah, and it was children. for Uvalde coverage was part of a larger continuing coverage of gun violence yes. in America. And yeah. I was reading, I think, this morning that um, children yeah. now are at greatest risk for gun violence. It used to be car accidents. Yeah. Um, and now we're seeing gun violence is a leading, if not the leading cause for death for young children. Do you feel as a journalist you can make a difference on this issue? It seems that we, we're, we're stuck here. We don't seem to know how to move forward. A kind of learned helplessness, if I can put it that way. It is. It's the number one killer of children in America now yeah. is gun violence for yeah. kids 0 to 18. Um, so I was overseas when Sandy Hook happened. I was uh, actually on Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And I remember when the news broke, and it broke in a way that it was like, oh, we can't do that story you're doing right now because this other terrible thing has happened, and we'll circle back. And I said, that's fine. I was um, embedding with the uh, US Army at the time. But I remember reading about it from thousands of miles away and thinking, my god, if that many children died here in a war zone, what would have been the reaction? It, it, it would have been outrage. It would have been just absolute outrage. And to watch the reaction unfold from a distance, it was very difficult to process. Yeah. Um, because you have to ask yourself why. If not for children, then when? And I think a lot of Americans are asking themselves that same question, and America is unique for a lot of the things we hold dear, in particular our Second Amendment rights, and more people than not that I talk to in the field, even who are responsible gun owners, believe that we need more protection of some kind. But covering Uvalde, I think, was different and unique because those kids were my kids' ages. Oh, dear, yes. And a lot mm. of them look like my kids. Yeah. And to meet their parents and to see their school, to imagine what the parents had said to them that morning before they walked in the doors and what they didn't say to them, I think it was all a bit too much. And, you know, I'll be 
100% honest about this as well because I think it's an important start of the part of the story. When I came back, I was not okay. You were not okay. I was not okay. Something had shifted in me that was not able to shift back in ways it had previously. And my husband, to his credit, recognized it and said, you've got to get help. Oh. And I did. And in therapy. I've, I've been therapy in therapy helped. very um, frequently immediately after that, less frequently now, but continuing to it. And I think it's important to talk about this because when I was coming up as a journalist, we did not talk about this. You were just expected to bear witness to some of the most horrific parts of humanity, find a place to put it, and move on. And you develop a kind of gallows humor about it or a cynicism about it and lots of different coping mechanisms. And I don't want to be that way, and I will never be that way, and I don't want the next generation of journalists to be that way. I want us to still care, and I want us to still bring empathy and compassion to our jobs. And to do that, you have to be okay inside. Yeah. You mentioned your, your two daughters. Yeah. And I did have to fact check this with you yesterday. <laughs> uh, Amna has their names tattooed somewhere on your body. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, what is it like to be a working mom? You've got two kids, you've got a husband, you've got a big job. It's the best adventure I've ever been on. So, First of all, I'll say the best decision I ever made was to marry Paul because he is the absolute best man I've ever known and the How best did you father find to this my guy? <laughs> We were set up. We were set up, and shout out to my friend Roe for setting us up. He'd never set me up before, but he met Paul, and he came to me, and he said, there is this guy you have to meet, and he was right. And uh, It's a good friend. It's a great friend, yeah. yes. I, I write him a thank you note every year on our, on our anniversary. Um, it's a lot. I think any working parent knows, right? You are constantly under pressure. You constantly feel like you're failing one part of yourself or the other. Um, my husband, when I took the job with NewsHour, was at the New York Times and gave me perhaps the best gift, and my girl's the best gift he's ever given us, which was to say he stepped away from his very successful career and went full-time parent with the wow. kids. Wow. Lots of call for sure. And annoyingly, he is much better at it than I ever was. <laughs> but it's also sort of revolutionary, right? My girls get to see a world in which daddy packs their lunches every day, and daddy takes them to dance class, and daddy arranges the play dates. And, uh, you know, a day, a few days, a few weeks ago, he got sick, he got COVID, he was in the basement. I went to the girls and I said, okay, daddy's going to be downstairs for a little bit. And they sat on the couch and they said, what are we going to do? <laughs> and who are you? And right? I was like, what do you mean? What are we going to do? And the little one literally said to me, well, daddy's in charge of the whole house. <laughs> and while it broke my heart a little bit, I, I was uh, like, okay, at least this lesson has taken. Right. Um, so yes, marrying Paul, I think, was the best thing. It freed me up in ways I couldn't otherwise do this job. But also, I got the best advice I ever got from Ann Curry when I was producing with her years ago as a young producer. And she had young children at the time, and she traveled a lot. Ann traveled a lot, and she showed up. I learned that from her. You have to show up. And I asked her how she did it all, and she said, you're never going to feel like you have it all. There's no such thing as balance. You have to be present. When you're at work, you're at work. And when you're with your family, you're with your family. And so every night when I get home after the show, I put my phone down and my laptop down in the other room. I am all about my girls until the moment they go to bed. I spend time with each of them. I ask about their days. I brush their hair. I do all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And in the morning when they wake up, 
I am all about them over the breakfast table until it's time for me to go to work. And I don't know if it's making any kind of a difference. We'll find out, I guess, years from now. <laughs> but it is the only way I know to bring some sort of sense and balance and, um, and peace to right. our world. And peace, yeah. yeah. That elusive peace. We do want to hear some of your questions. And we have two microphones here set up. So yes, we have a question from the audience. You, you mentioned you travel a lot. <clears throat> And um, do you worry about your own security? The reason I'm asking is I recently looked at the State Department website because a friend was going to Pakistan on business, and Pakistan has a high alert for security. And so I wonder, somebody like you, when you go to Pakistan, do you, are you concerned about your security? I'm less concerned, honestly, in places where I don't stand out as much. Mm. Pakistan was easier for me in some ways than for others because if I have a dupatta over my head and I'm walking down the street or you know, wandering through a public place, I don't stand out immediately in a way that other people might. But there's a lot of places I go where I do stand out, <laughs> including right here in America. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the approach to security for me has always been you have to think about it. You'd be silly not to think about it. You have to kind of know the landscape you're walking into. But I also never want to think of the world as a scary place. It wasn't for me when I was growing up. You know, new places were things that you looked forward to. And I think in trying to impart that onto my girls and in trying to inform my work with that, I don't try to go in thinking about security first. Um, because I think when you put up those walls and those concerns as your primary sort of lens, uh, it affects how you see a place. Um, so yeah, there probably are some places I should be more concerned. Maybe my husband wishes I was. <laughs> but for me, the world is still a, a place I'm not done exploring. Thank you. Well, we're going to end on that note. I <laughs> know, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the clock tells me we have to do that. Amna Navaz, thank you so much Marty, thank for you. joining us. Thank you. Thank you all. That was Amna Nawaz, the co-host of the NewsHour on PBS, about her 20 years in journalism. We spoke last week when she was at WHYY. Thanks so much for joining us today. For more information about the show, check out our website, whyy.org slash The Connection. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts.